number two, the Pete Callender Show here on News Talk 1110-993 WBT. That is Callender with a K. A-L-I-N-E-R. You can go to Pete Callender, the Pete Callender Show.com. You want to email me, Pete at the Pete Callender Show.com. Uh, and uh, that's where you find the podcast. You can subscribe. It's also at WBT.com. And if you would like to weigh in, the phone number 704-570-1110. 800 WBT 1110. Charlotte City Council member Braxton Winston speaking out after deadly shootings. Fox46.com. Queen City News reporting Charlotte City Council member Braxton Winston's he who uh, parlayed his uh, uh, protests uh, during the Black Lives Matter summer of love, mostly peaceful riots. Um, right. He's calling for peace now um, after three deadly shootings in less than two days in the Queen City on Sunday. By the way, I agree with him on this. I agree. We must treat each other better as a community, he said. I agree. Most shootings in the Queen City occur over petty conflicts. We need a culture of love over violence. I agree. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Maybe we could come up with, I don't know, like some guidelines about that. I mean, these would not be obviously enforceable, except to the point where you infringe upon other people's rights. Um, these would not be enforceable, though, by by GovCo, right? This would just be cultural, societal, civilizational. This would be the norm, right? We'd just be able to say, okay, here are a couple things that you should do. Like, for example, I'm just going to – I'm just thinking here. Just off the top of my head, just spitballing. How about uh, treat your parents with respect? How about that? That's a pretty good one, right? If you're trying to create a culture of love over violence – I don't know. Respecting your elders might be a pretty good one. Because if you think about it, if you inculcate that among particularly the youths, then uh, you can uh, essentially protect large classes of people that are parents, grandparents, elderly, whatever. You can protect them. Assuming that, you know, teaching the next generations and all generations to respect parents, then it sounds like that would be a good way to. Uh, to reduce victimization of anybody who could potentially be a parent, right? Obviously, some criminals are going to target people regardless, but if we're trying to develop a culture that rewards love over violence, then that might be a good one. Um, I mean, not killing is a pretty good one, too, right? I mean, it's kind of the obvious. I'm just saying there are maybe... Maybe some guidelines and we could post them up someplace for people to live by on their own, just completely voluntary. But have everybody or as many people as possible kind of sign on to this idea and push the culture, push the society towards these things. And look, we don't need a lot of these rules. God knows we have enough laws on the books already. So, again, these are not going to be laws. These would just be, uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to say they're mandates. Guidelines, suggestions, if you will. We don't want a lot. I'd say we limit it to 10. Just maybe 10 of these mandates or suggestions, these guidelines. We, we limit it to 10. And this way we can post them all around town squares and schools and wherever. We can post these ideas, these, these 
not mandates, right? these voluntary <laughs> guidelines. This is really at the heart of, I think, what is uh, troubling so many sectors and industries and areas of our society. I really do. It's, it's this turning away from what were essentially universally accepted ideas. And um, there's a, uh, there was a debate I saw several years ago. I think his name is Sam Stein. He's a noted atheist. And he was in a debate with Jordan Peterson, the clinical psychologist. And uh, they, they've had numerous debates over the years, very lengthy. And like they use words that I've never heard before nor since. And so it's very difficult to follow. Sometimes they're brilliant guys. But one of the things that Jordan Peterson argued, he said, if you take, and by the way, yes, here's the spoiler alert, kind of talking about Christian principles here, but take away the metaphysical components of Christianity, right? Take that out of the equation for a moment. Don't think of the, you know, uh, the resurrection. Don't think of like all of the, the core metaphysical miracles, all of that. Just set all of that aside and just look at the rules. Just look at the ideas, New Testament ideas about how to best order your society. And generally speaking, those are pretty good rules, right? Knowing that no society is ever going to be perfect, but as far as rules go, hey, if we all kind of follow these, you're going to make that society as stable as possible, and you'll minimize victimization as much as possible. Now, man is involved, and every time man's involved, he messes it up, right? Sorry, and women. Every time men and women are involved, they mess it up. Okay, and everybody else who's not a man or a woman, any of the other 72 genders, whatever, they mess it up. So... That utopia is not one of the options available to us. But as far as guidelines go, there's some pretty solid ones. Maybe, maybe we should work on those. Maybe we should promote those. Maybe we shouldn't be embarrassed by those. Hmm? This leads me to a piece over at the Dispatch by Jonah Goldberg. And... Uh, you see a lot of this stuff, it came up in the Parents' Bill of Rights legislation and the debate over that about harm. Oh, my gosh, you can't, you can't say, don't say gay. You can't, you can't do this, don't say gay bill, which, of course, it isn't. Neither was Florida's, but uh, North Carolina's is definitely not that, right? This pushback against uh, teaching kids in K through 3 about gender identity and sexual orientation. And, yes, I did see the, the videos that were posted up from that Dallas, Texas drag queen for the children, was it Drag the Children to Pride, I think was the name of the event, where they literally did uh, drag queen dancing to little kids in this bar, which is illegal, but they did it. That was over the weekend, and they just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. But you keep hearing this argument that simply guarding K-3 through kids from having teachers proselytize about sex, because that's what's happening, right? They're talking about sex and gender identity and who's sleeping with whom, and, and please, child, validate my existence, that kind of stuff. If you pass a law to try to guard kids against that, we're told that that's going to cause some kids harm. That's causing harm. 
but not the other way around. They're on the other side of the ledger, no harm there, I guess, right? But Jonah Goldberg talks about an interview that he heard on NPR, Morning Edition, Steve Inskeep, talking with the education correspondent Corey Turner on the subject of mass shootings at schools. And what he says is that they need to focus on softening to support the social and emotional needs of students. Is that really the right course, though? We're going to get into that in a minute. So the other day, Morning Edition on NPR, it's their morning program with Steve Inskeep. I should do this. Well, here, I'll do the, uh, this was the uh, education correspondent, Corey Turner, talking with Steve Inskeep, the host. They're talking about gun violence and mass shootings at schools and such. And the education correspondent says, quote, they can do a few things. They're, no, I got Vocal fry. <clears throat> they can do a few things. There's been, well, because there's been this big push on NPR for everybody to have vocal fry. I don't understand why. What happened to the, the crisp, clean? Look, hey, I used to work over at the, my first job in radio was at the NPR affiliate here in Charlotte. I was, man, look. If you ever got a coffee mug circa 1997 or maybe a tote bag or something, I sent it to you. You're welcome. And I remember I got great advice from uh, the news director at the time. Her name was Suzanne Stevens, not the one from WSOC-TV, not Channel 9's Suzanne Stevens, but Suzanne Stevens. She ended up getting out of radio um, when she left that gig, but... I was asking her for help on, uh, you know, how do I get on the air? How do I, and she, you know, helped me build a resume tape. And so, uh, you know, I get the first um, uh, uh, news copy and I'm, I record it and I'm putting it all together so I can show like I can, you know, I can walk a song in and walk a song out and I can, I can deliver a newscast. And at that point I was trying to be a reporter. So I do some read, uh, some reading of some copy. And here's how I would read it. Um, They can do a few things. There has been a lot of movement in recent years towards hardening schools. And she stops the tape and she says, what are you doing? (laughs) And I said, well, I'm I'm doing the news. I was reading the news and I felt like, you know, it sounded more newsy if I did it like that. And she said, just read it in your own voice. Because people are not going to trust what you say if they don't trust how you say it. It was a great piece of advice. I've done that my entire life. Even when people mock me for my voice and say, man, you have a, a voice for print and a face for radio. Anyway, the um, uh, this, the, the education court, oh, all of that is to say, yes, I'm down the rabbit hole here, but why does everybody on NPR have vocal fry now? Vocal fry. That's, where that, that's what happens. Ah. It's like this, yeah. It's like clear your throats, people. Like the throat locks up, and apparently there's like long-term damage that people are doing to their vocal cords by engaging in this fry activity, this fritivity. So, um, but back in my day, they used to talk like this all the time on NPR. So here is the education correspondent, Corey Turner. 
sorry. I don't know why I go off on tangents. I I recognize this. I have self-awareness. All right. So, quote, they could do a few things. There has been a lot of movement in recent years towards hardening schools. So adding police officers and metal detectors. But honestly, the experts I spoke with say schools should focus on softening, not hardening, softening to support the social and emotional needs of students. In that 2018 call to action that I mentioned, experts recommended a national requirement that schools, quote, maintain physically and emotionally safe conditions and positive school environments that protect all students and adults from bullying, discrimination, harassment, and assault. The Secret Service found among the school gunmen they studied, 80% had been bullied and three quarters had some kind of disciplinary history at school, which is why the Secret Service also recommends schools implement what they call a threat assessment model where trained staff, including an administrator, a school counselor or psychologist, and some kind of law enforcement representative all team up to help identify students who exhibit red flag behaviors and get them help before there's a crisis. Now, Jonah Goldberg at thedispatch.com says, if, as reported above, 80% of school gunmen had been bullied, okay, but that still means 20% were not. So eradicating all bullying, which, by the way, is not possible, uh, but it would still leave those one out of five school shooters for whom bullying was not a factor. But let's accept that there's a strong causal link between bullying and becoming a mass shooter. There's still the fact that most people who are bullied in school don't become mass shooters, right? Anyway, in that segment... The reporter says experts say that they, we should make the schools softer, more welcoming, um, welcoming and not harder, as in more secure. And Goldberg says there's a bit of a category error here, and I agree with him. News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT, the Pete Callender Show, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. So this argument that was offered up by the education correspondent for NPR, Corey Turner, said that experts that he talked to say we should make schools softer, not harder, as in more secure. Softer, more welcoming, more nurturing. He said, and Jonah Goldberg says, I think there's a bit of a category error here. Making schools more nurturing and supportive is not in conflict with making them physically safer. This is, again, this is one of those false choices that usually gun controllers make to try to force me to abandon, and, you know, others like me, to abandon a particular position and agree with them. And they cast this choice as the only choice between these only options. These, I give you option A, my option, which is a fantastic option, take all the guns, or B, everyone dies. You don't want everyone to die, do you? Right? These are false dichotomies, false choices that are offered. But it's a category error in that one does not necessarily uh, uh, prevent the other from occurring. And that is the case here. And I encountered this as well when I would say harden the targets and people say, I don't want my school to look like a prison. Okay, well, then don't make it look like a prison. Nobody's telling you to make it look like a prison. You can have walls and gates and everything on the outside. Then when you get in, it could be 
you know, filled with unicorns and rainbows. It's fantastic. Have you ever been into a theater? Seriously, have you been into a movie theater? Like the movie theaters on the outside, usually, but hashtag not all movie theaters, but usually a lot of movie theaters are really ugly, right? There's big boxes because they need to be, you know, dark and big and there are no windows and they're kind of ugly on the outside, but you go inside and then you get treated to you know, all sorts of entertainment on the screen. That's the whole point. You can design for this stuff, folks. Anyway, uh, Jonah Goldberg says, I don't know this, but I'm pretty confident that there are some schools that are incredibly well-designed and heavily guarded that are also quite nurturing. If you see a family home with a state-of-the-art security system, there's no reason to assume that it's less loving and nurturing inside, right? So you drive down the road when you see the, the you know, home security signs in people's gardens out in front of their doors warning would-be robbers that, hey, we got security here. Do you think, oh... Those parents in that home, they must really hate their kids. Is that what you think? What a bizarre kind of thought process, right? Goldberg goes on to say later, I just don't believe that schools have become less tolerant since Columbine. I don't think bullying has increased. If anything, I think the opposite is true. And I agree with him on that score, too. Do you really think that bullying is worse now than it used to be? And I guess I should point out bullying in person, bullying online, that's something I never had to deal with, right? I'm the last generation that remembers school before smartphones, where once you left uh, class for the day, unless you were going to go hang out with classmates afterwards, you got to escape from whatever BS happened in the school that day, right? You got to, you got to unplug, you got to go be yourself have a whole other life outside of uh, the school. And you didn't get, you, you don't get those types of opportunities anymore. So the online bullying follows you outside of the classroom now. But he says the last two decades, um, schools have leapt into the anti-bullying cause. I'm sure there's less bullying in my high school today than there was when I attended. But he says, I don't know that for sure. And that's one of the things Goldberg keeps saying, you know, I, I, I'm, and he is, you can tell, wrestling with all of these different ideas. He says, if these horrors are increasing, it is not obvious to me that doubling down on anti-bullying will suddenly reverse the trend. I think it's at least plausible. It could make things worse, at least if we maintain the current form of anti-bullying. See, this is what I mean. If you don't understand, I, I say this all the time, if you don't understand the outcomes that you're seeing, re-examine the assumptions, Re-examine the premises upon which you expected to see certain results. And then when you don't see those results, it's because your premises or your assumptions were wrong, right? So Goldberg says he's not in favor of bullying. I hate bullies too. We all hate bullies. Okay, but have you heard of the book, The Coddling of the American Mind? It's on safetyism. It's a larger mindset and policy approach. It does not lead to kids feeling safer. It's actually quite the opposite. It creates an environment where young people, at least a lot of them, are more likely to feel unsafe more easily. We see this all around us as teen anxiety is through the roof. When we tell kids constantly that everything is going to harm them, 
they become very worried that they're going to get harmed at any given moment. This is, I remember reading a, uh, a survey that was done uh, on uh, the audience for the show Stranger Things. Have you heard of this show, Stranger Things? And the younger kids, or kids, sorry, sorry, Bernie, millennials and younger, uh, they tended to not believe or not enjoy, I should say, they not enjoy the show as much as the older generations did. And you know what the number one cited reason in this survey was for why they, they didn't enjoy it? They found it implausible that the kids would be riding their bicycles all over town all day long. Right. That, like that, they, children today don't have any concept of what now I hear some people refer to as free-range parenting or free-range kids, you know? That was just standard for us. Like, we would come home. And mom went back to work, and so there wasn't anybody home. We had the house to ourselves. We had to let ourselves in. Latchkey kids, that became the term for Gen X, the best generation. Well, aside from the greatest generation. Um, but Gen X, yeah, we, we were on our own. I mean, you would leave all day. You wouldn't come back until dinner time. School days, weekends, all day on weekends, just gone all the time. And parents just assumed, yeah, they're fine. Of course, then that then gave rise to the media scarab and everybody, you know, all the missing children, all the, with the photos on the milk cartons and all of that. But in the last two decades, a lot of institutions have rejected this idea, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. They've rejected that. They now adopt the opposite, which is words are violence. <laughs> So remember, Charlotte City Councilman Braxton Winston, you know, he said, we must treat each other better as a community. Most shootings in the Queen City occur over petty conflicts. We need a culture of love over violence. He offers us no uh, you know, practical guideposts here on how to develop said community of love over violence or culture of love over violence. But maybe... Maybe, just hear me out here, but maybe speech is not violence. Think about it. Jonah Goldberg at the Dispatch, he says, maybe when we blur the lines between speech and violence, we may or may not get less violent speech, but we also get more violence as a substitute for speech. If speech is violence, then what's to stop me from committing actual violence? See, this is what happens when you corrupt the language and you make words mean different things. This is what the progressive left, the postmodernist left, has been doing for decades now. Whether it's institutions, norms, whatever, rituals that we have in our society, status quo, uh, you know, accepted principles, but speech predominantly. It's to sow confusion, it's to create chaos. And when you say speech is violence... You've now cheapened the violence. You've you, right. You've lowered the you've lowered the barrier for entry. Because if I'm just saying something and now you get to assault me, and that's perceived to be equal because speech is violence. You've now incentivized violence in a different way. 
versus the sticks and stones may break my bones. Words will never hurt me. Which, by the way, actually toughens you up. It does. We just moved into our house a couple months ago, Christy and I. We've met our neighbors. We have great neighbors. I don't think politically we all agree. I know we don't agree on on many things, but it doesn't matter. And I told just right out of the gate before they even knew who I was, I told them, I said, you're not going to offend me. You can't offend me. So don't worry about that. Don't worry about offending me unless you're trying to like pick a fight with me, in which case then I will recognize you're trying to pick a fight with me, but I'm not going to get offended. That's a, that's my choice to be offended. So don't feel like you have to walk around on eggshells for fear of offending me. Not for everybody, but for people at the margins, when you say speech is violence, you tend to cheapen the violence. Goldberg says, maybe if any bullying remark is enough to make somebody feel physically threatened or even attacked, then resorting to actual violence may seem more justifiable. If speech is violence and violence is speech, by what logic is it illogical to respond to violent language, quote-unquote, with the language of physical violence? Um, I think there's something worth saying about evil, he says, starting with the fact that it exists. And without a concept of evil, it's very difficult to make the case for the good. Oh, let me jump over here to Jane. Hello, Jane. Welcome to the program. How are you? Uh, thanks, Pete. Uh, this is a great conversation. I wanted to say about Brenton Winston. When there were riots downtown, he went up there and kind of was, uh, was talking back to a police officer in front of his children. It would be nice if people like Brenton Winston would have more respect for our police officers. Maybe then they would be there for us. And that, that's a lesson he needs to learn, because I was very disappointed that I would never support him after that. Well, he would, that, that's what launched his political run. He, he did that, and then he got elected, right? Well, if people want, uh, they don't want, they want uh, catastrophe in their neighborhoods, they want murders, they want all of this rioting and all of this stuff, then they pick the right person. But if they want to respect the police, then they need to get people in there that actually respect the police. I got you. Jane, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. And uh, let me go over, uh, I got the message here from Andy. Pete, maybe NPR people have vocal fry because they've been screaming at Trump for four years. That's possible. Uh, or about Trump for four years. That's possible. That's how they got the fry. Um, and then he said, uh, to, to palindrome, a man, a plan, a canal, Panama. That's that's a palindrome. Did you know that one? Yeah, that's the famous one. Palindrome. It's a David Lee Roth song, too, I think. Um, modern societies have a real problem with the concept of evil. We are obsessed with root cause explanations for antisocial behavior. Moralistic language, at least moralistic language we don't like, is silly or reactionary. Monsters aren't real. They're just misunderstood. I think monsters are real. I think there are monsters. More importantly, I think evil ideas are real. Goldberg goes on to say it's a strange paradox. When everything is permitted, when everyone has a reason to do something, we act as if the lessons that responsibility for their actions when it should mean the opposite... The sociological obsession with root causes saps the importance of agency. Monsters become nothing more than products of their environments, and they're victims too. We have a twisted and deformed view that monstrous acts are justified 
if the monster's feelings of victimization are justified or simply understandable. Powerlessness is now an excuse to lash out at the powerful. It's a problem. But yes, evil does exist. (laughs) 